Second Timothy chapter number three, verse number one is where we'll start today. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, tradey, or excuse me, got ahead of myself, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And here's our text today. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. I want to... um I always do this when I preach, so we may as well do it when I teach as well. I just want to take a minute and pray and ask the Lord to touch us today. Dear Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for this day. And God, we ask you that you might just take the, the lesson that we've pre- prepared for today. Uh, let us take it to our hearts. God, we pray that you would allow us to be able to learn from it. Lord, be able to spread what we've learned. Lord, to others. Lord, to encourage, to challenge others. Lord, we pray that you would do that today. Encourage us and challenge us to do your will. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to try to teach on this thought uh, and try not to make half of y'all mad because we don't have very many here, but the recklessness of religion. The recklessness of religion. There are warnings throughout Scripture uh, about established religion. Now, it's not going to say, thou shalt not be a part of this denomination or this religion here or there, but it it speaks about following God and not men. And uh, so that's kind of the direction that we're going to take this morning. Uh, But I'll say this, according to our text, he says, there are some having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, denying the power of God. So they, they want to present themselves as though they are godly. Uh, they want to put on the right clothes. They want to do the right things, but they don't want any part of God. And you could define that by the previous four verses. And he says that in, in the latter days, there's going to be perilous times. And he said there's going to be people that fall away. And in verse number 2, there's going to be lovers of their own selves. They're covetous. He begins to make a laundry list of things that people will become. And we can see that in 2021, that men truly have become lovers of their own selves. And so we want to build upon verse number 5 especially, uh, but we cannot forget those previous verses. And so it's useless to have a form of godliness in our lives and deny the power of God. There's a lot of folks that because they are religious, maybe they grew up in church or they grew up with some uh, some spiritual background that they hold on to that throughout their lives, and they base their uh, they base their eternity on some uh, religious experience. Well, salvation 
is more than a religious experience. It is something that is life-changing. And uh, many people base their, their eternity on someone else or on maybe the church or maybe the preacher. I have heard countless times where people would uh, be talking about a preacher and, and I think it's just because they don't know any better, uh, but they would say, uh, that preacher, and call his name, saved me. Well, we know as believers that no man can save someone. It is God. Uh, but very likely they meant that man was preaching when I got saved. And, and I understand that, so I'm not too critical of that. But there are still some that believe that their salvation is in a man. We can call out if we needed to different, different denominations, if you will, that believe that way. And uh, unfortunately, they're wrong. Uh, their, their salvation cannot be found in man. The Scripture says that there is none, under na- no, none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 3, somewhere around verse number 7, Marvel not that ye must be born again. And so how are we to do that? It, it's through Jesus Christ. And so I want to start with this. I'm just going to give you maybe three, might be four things, four things, um, and we'll try to um, to hurry through. We're going to turn over now to the book of Acts. Acts chapter number two, I want you to notice, number one, church membership is not salvation. Church membership is not salvation. Now, I need to be careful here because church membership is important, but it's not Eternally important, if that makes sense. I'm going to give you some scriptures, but I'm also going to read you uh, at least part of the church covenant and uh, make a few points from here. Um, Acts chapter number 2, verse number 38. Um, this is Peter. He is preaching. It says, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins... <clears throat> and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Um, we'll continue to read. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as, um, as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he, Peter, testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Notice verse 41. Now, he just told them in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Okay. Now, a lot of people, they, they hang baptism on verse number 38, and they said because of the, the um, progression of verse number 38, Repent and be baptized for the remission, or if you will, for the forgiveness of sins. They say that it is necessary for baptism before you could ever be forgiven. And and I disagree with that thought. And I don't believe that's what Peter is teaching here in verse number 38 of Acts chapter 2. But let's carry on. Verse number 41, it says, Then they that gladly received his word, they received what he said, they were, they were saved, they did believe, they did repent. He said, Then they were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 
Verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and all and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted to all men as every man had need. Verse 46 and 47. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added unto or added to the church daily such as should be saved. So I believe we can glean here in verse number 41 and verse number 47, as well as if we were to turn over, I believe, to chapter number six. Verse number 5, they were choosing out some deacons, and it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, or if you will, the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and goes on. And so I believe the scripture, even in the early church, establishes a local body of believers. That's why Paul, that's why Peter, that's why uh, Andrew, that's why so many other men went to the uttermost parts of the world to preach the gospel, to establish churches because they didn't want one universal church because if there was one universal church, there would be no fellowship. There would be no uh, teaching, and we'll get to that. There'd be no discipleship or training uh, for those that were outside of the church at Jerusalem. So church membership is not salvation. There is a man named Gerard Halleck, and he said this. Um, he said, there's a sign which we're told is posted at the entrance of a graveyard in Ireland. It says, only the dead who live in this parish are buried here. Now, you wrap your mind around that. Only the dead who live in this parish are buried here. Now, I feel like I've unraveled it enough in my studies that I know what he's trying to say. Okay, so just like, uh, just take this graveyard back here. Nobody really knows who it belongs to. Nobody knows anybody that's buried back there. None, none of those things. Um, but we kind of feel like as a church, we need to take care of the grounds. Okay, so the sign explains that those people that live in the parish... They die, they're buried there. But listen, this writer, he says, We wonder if any reference is intended as to the dead church members who live in the parish flourishing on the church roll. They're flourishing in numerical units and they're serving the ends of the church only so far as counting heads is concerned. But so far as any real usefulness, they are dead as a doornail. And that is as dead as anything could be. So he took a play on words. He said those that are living in this parish are dead and they're buried here. And so it kind of makes me wonder today, are there people that are part of the church, they're members of the church, if you will, they have church membership, but that is all. All they have is their name written on a document somewhere or written in their minds that they were baptized or they joined a church somewhere, but that's all. They're, they're literally dead men walking because they have no substance of their faith. 
Salvation cannot be replaced or duplicated by baptism. There are so many folks today that they believe that salvation comes through baptism. And then people believe that salvation is completed in baptism. Both of those lines of thought are wrong. Salvation is in and of itself only by Christ Jesus and His shed blood. And so... Uh, church membership is important, but it is not in the eternal economics of things. It is not so important that without it, you're without Christ. Baptism is essential in following the Lord scripturally. I believe Jesus himself, as an example, taught this. He was baptized by John the Baptist. Others were baptized throughout the New Testament after receiving Christ, and after repenting, they were baptized. The Ethiopian, where is that in, uh, what is that, uh, Acts chapter number 8, chapter number 9, somewhere, I think it's chapter number 8, uh, you remember he was reading the Bible, he was religious, he, he, he had just come from worshiping in Jerusalem, and he was reading the Bible, and Philip said, do you understand what you read? And he said, how can I except some men teach me? And so he opened to him the scriptures, he believed, he was saved, and then he said, here's water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? So he wanted to follow the example that he had heard about from Christ and from the other preachers in baptism. And so, too, we today, we teach that salvation is first and that is essential. Afterwards is baptism or church membership. But there are so many people that get that backwards. Church membership does have its advantages. I firmly believe that Church membership is necessary in your Christian life. Now, I say that very specifically. is not to be a Christian, but in your Christian life. I believe that you need to be a part of a local church. I believe you need to be a member of a local church. You may say, how do you become a member of a church, of a Baptist church? I've never been a member of anything else, so I'll just tell you. To be a member of a Baptist church, number first, number, <laughs> number first of all, Number one, you have to be saved. You have to be born again. You have to have repented of your sins, ask the Lord to save you. You have to be saved, okay? First of all and foremost, you have to do that. Second of all, you you join the church one of three ways. You join the church by baptism. And uh, some of you may not know this, but there's baptism under me right here. Uh, I told that to somebody the other day, and their eyes just got just wide. I had no idea you had a baptistry there. So the, the, the baptism is one way. The other is moving your church letter. Now, church letter, that confuses, confounds, and just absolutely terrifies people sometimes. To move a church letter, first of all, it has to be from another like-faith Baptist church. So you're, you're, you're moving from... A Baptist church to B Baptist church, okay? And so you're moving your letter within that quote-unquote denomination. Now, if you are part of another denomination, guess what? There's still hope for you. And I don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but if you feel led to join Lighthouse Baptist Church, then guess what? If, if you, if you, I, I would recommend baptism 
But if you cannot do that, there's someone that approached me some time ago about baptism and their health was not that great and would not uh, it not be advisable to baptize that person. And uh, she is from a different denomination, but she is absolute assured that she is saved and she wants to join the church. And I said, then your option is that you join by statement and that is your statement of faith. Uh, in joining the church by statement of faith, that is saying that I absolutely know that I'm saved by the grace of God, but there are some things hindering me from being baptized, and I'm coming from another denomination, so I can't move my letter. Does that make sense? Everybody shake your head right there. So, in in saying that, to join this church, you simply must be saved and join by one of those three ways... How do you start that process? You simply ask the question. I want to join the church. How can I do that? And we will begin to tell you then. But in being a member of a church, there are too many that depend on their... Now, I've said this a few times. There are too many that depend on their church membership for eternity. And that will lead you down the wrong road. But then there's also folks that they move their membership from church to church so much that they forget what church they belong to. I know a few folks like that. Um, church that I pastored in Tennessee, I was, I was uh, often surprised when someone, maybe one of the older folks in the church said, hey, you know that so, such and such died? I said, honestly, I don't even know who such and such is. And they say, oh, well, she used to come to church about 30, 40 years ago. I'm like, oh, okay. And so I look at the, the obituary and it would say her name and she died on such and such date and she was a faithful member of Cedar Bluff Baptist Church. And I said, I've never seen her and I've been here for 10 years. Who is this lady? I have no idea. So I'd go to the funeral and I didn't know a clue except for those folks that were of the church. So uh, some people, they... They depend on their church membership to get them to heaven. Others, they move their membership so often or they depend on that kind of as a safety blanket. Just in case something happens, I can claim I'm a member of this church and maybe get some benefits that way. that's, That's not the way to do it. But being a member of a Baptist church, it will get you discipleship. It will get you Bible teaching. should get you Bible teaching. It should get you Bible preaching. Not only that, but it will also give you fellowship. And in fellowship, it'll give you edification. When you fellowship with others, you are encouraged, you're lifted up, you're, you're, uh, uh, you, you have a camaraderie. Uh, when trouble comes, you can talk to your brother or your sister and you can overcome those difficult times. You counsel. You can have counsel. Now, I, my personality is I don't care if you're some stranger on the street, a member of the church, upstanding citizen, mayor, president, whatever. If you need some spiritual counsel, I feel like it's my duty as a Christian, not only a preacher and pastor, but to try to give you good godly counsel no matter what. Uh, but if we were to line it out, being a member of the church gets you counsel from your pastor, but that's neither here nor there, because if you need help, I'll try to help you. And then church discipline. Now, we don't preach a whole lot about church discipline. We don't definitely don't talk or teach about church discipline, but being a member of a Baptist church carries with it church discipline. 
if you are a member of this church and you go astray and you don't, you don't come to church when you're perfectly able to come to church, you, you don't tithe. And, and I'll say this about tithing. I've said it before. I don't get into, uh, brother Jim Smith is not here today. He's our treasurer. I don't ask him who's tithing and who isn't. That, I don't feel like that's any of my business. Um, and I, I may be wrong in that, but I feel like if I know you are not tithing, then I'm going to preach at you. Kurt, for instance, if you stop tithing for some reason and I found out about it, I might be able to go privately to you and counsel you, but to get behind the pulpit and to preach a message on tithing just because you weren't tithing, I feel like I would be in the wrong in doing that. That's preaching in the flesh, not and try to uplift and encourage. Definitely not counseling, but it will it will give you the the great opportunity of church discipline. I say it's an opportunity because I believe too many Christians, and there's one young lady that that is constantly on my heart. We talked about her just just by name a little bit last night, um, but because I didn't give church discipline, she is now very far away from the Lord. And it could be, Brother Kenny, if by chance when we found out that she had slipped and fallen, if I had reached out to her in the proper way and tried to to restore her and to even give church discipline and say, if you're going to do this, then the church has to remove you from the role or whatever the case may be. I believe that gives them that opportunity to say, you know what, it's not worth this sin or this whatever. I'm going to stay with God. I'm going to stay in the church. Number, Well, I, I was going to read this. Um, this is the church covenant. Now, if you were to Google the church covenant, we don't have one, but a lot of churches, they have them on their walls. Um, but the church covenant, and this is specific to Baptist churches. So um, if, if, if you've never heard of this, and, and I know that in my three years I've never taught out of the, the church covenant or anything, but know, first of all, that this is, a, this is a man-made document. This is not Scripture, so don't, don't take it as Scripture, but these, I believe, they can all be backed up from Scripture. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's about six or seven paragraphs. But the very last paragraph says this we moreover engage that when we remove from this place we will as soon as possible unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word now you're welcome to read this I've printed off a copy just in case um, and may even do some teaching from that uh, in in future days but I believe, again, with the church membership, number one, church membership is not salvation, but I do believe in the Christian's life, it is necessary to have a church that you can call your home. And if you move from one church to another, I believe in due diligence, it is our responsibility to join that other church. Y'all still with me this morning? I know know I'm not as pretty as Brother David, but y'all just hang on. All right, number two, movement is not life. We're going to Ezekiel chapter number 37. I may or may not actually read it, but we're going to go there nonetheless. Ezekiel chapter number 37. 
we see that Ezekiel is having a vision here. And in this vision, God shows him a valley filled with bones. Ezekiel 37. If you have a Schofield Bible, it's page 881. Somebody say amen right there. <clears throat> he, he, I think I might have told you verse number 5, but just to kind of show you this. Verse number 1, he sees the vision. He's carried by the Spirit into a valley. He said it was full of bones. Verse number 2, he calls me to pass round about. There were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. These were not just dead men. These were not men that had just their carcasses had decayed. These were bones that were dead for many years. And he said, Son of man, can you see these bones? O Lord, thou knowest. Or can these bones live? He says, O Lord, thou knowest. He said, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. He says, and I will lay sinews and I will bring flesh. I will cover the skin. I'll put breath and ye shall live. Verse 7, he prophesied. He did what he was told to do. He said, and behold, there was a shaking and the bones came together bone to his bone." And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, and but there was no breath in them. Keep that thought in mind. The Lord said again, prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, thou son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come thou the fourth, four winds, old breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. And so I told you, number two, movement is not life. These men here, uh, one writer says that, uh, that these, uh, he said these bones, they came together, they were covered with, with flesh, they were covered with skin, their sinew, all that came together, but they lay there, they looked normal, they looked as though they were alive, but they were dead. They were still dead. There was no breath in them. He said, at first glance, they may have appeared to be alive, but they were not. There was no breath. And the Bible speaks of some professors of religion that they too, according to our text, have a form of godliness, but are lacking in the power. They are lacking one thing, life. If you remember in our reading, it says the, the earth shook. There was a great shaking. And the bones came together. And the sinews came upon the bone. And the muscle came upon the bone. The skin came upon the bone. But there was no breath in them. There's a lot of folks today that they are profess. I'm talking about religion. Remember the title of the message? The recklessness of religion. In religion... And can I say this? I've mentioned Baptists a lot. There are a lot of Baptists that are religious. You need to understand that. Now, I believe that doctrinally, Baptist 
is correct. I believe that we are right. And if we could lay claims to being the most right, I believe that, that Baptists are the most right. Now, in saying that, Baptists, it's kind of like there's a, there's a, a diagram and Baptists are here and then there's all kinds of other Baptists around here. So, uh, it's, it's just a mess. But, let's say it like this, Bible believing Baptist churches, they're, that what what we are, we are independent, fundamental Baptist churches. What that means is we're not part of an organization or an association, but it also means that we are fundamental. So our our dictates they do not come from from some man made object; they come from the Word of God. Now, this church that we have a constitution and we have bylaws but i have read over and over those i have copies if you'd like to see those those are based upon the word of god they're not based upon some some arbitrary man somewhere they're based upon the scripture so um in, in saying this about uh being bible believing and being right or the most right and i'm sure that there's a lot of room for baptists to improve but know that even baptists are religious you have some baptists and this is outside of the 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 lesson you have some baptists that are they are so the word is dogmatic in their belief that they become religious you have some that are so dogmatic in their style of worship and our style of worship is the way that I believe is right. It's the way that I prefer. But there are others that worship in a different way that they too feel like they're right. They too feel like they're justified in in, in the way that they worship. I, I'm not a judge of men, I'll tell you that. I, Brother Jeb, I'm a judge of myself and I have to know what's right for me. And so... In, in, in saying this, I need us to know as far as this religious attitude is that movement is not life. They had a form. They looked solid. They looked like they were alive. They were just waiting. They were just waiting to stand and they had moved and gotten all together, but they were not alive. And there are a lot of folks today, uh, um, he, this gentleman says, there are skeleton churches. They are well organized. They are financially and numerically in good condition, but they are lacking in the one all important thing, spiritual life. Or, if you will, spiritual breath. One thing that every church should fear is skeleton Christians. We've talked recently about carnal Christians. Carnal Christians are... are it can be categorized in a few different ways. It could be a, a, a babe, a, 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 an immature Christian. Or it could be as far as... Age, it could be a mature Christian. In other words, someone that's been saved for a very long time. But spiritually, they are immature or they are rebellious. Now, there's a lot of folks, I don't want to hurt nobody, but there's a lot of folks that can be categorized as carnal and they may admit that they are carnal and they may claim, well, I'm just, I just don't know a lot of the Bible, or I don't know this, or I don't know that. And I, I, I'll clarify it for them if they would 
allow me to. It's not that they don't know. It's that they rebel against the preaching and the teaching. And they rebel against reading. They rebel against studying for themselves. And so they have chosen to be and remain a carnal Christian. These skeleton Christians, they make a profession of religion. They go through the motions of religion. They have a form of godliness, but they lack that one essential, just as these men, life. I was, uh, I told some people last night we were, uh, I don't know, a young boy told me, he said, you know how I know I'm going to hell? Now, keep in mind, this is a very young boy, and um, he, he doesn't understand a lot of things about church. So I, I don't want you to be judgmental towards this young boy. But he said, you know how I know I'm going to hell? And I kind of perked up and looked at him, and I thought, oh, well, here we go. We got us a good conversation going on. And I said, no, how? And he began to talk about and some of y'all are going to know what I'm saying, some of you are not. But he began to talk about TikTok. Hopefully, until I die, that's the last time you'll hear me say the word TikTok. I just feel dirty when I say it. Stupid, if, if I can say that. But he says, because I was watching a TikTok video, and it said, if you laugh, you're going to hell. Now, that, that seems silly to us, but to him, that made an impression. And he says... I'm going to hell because I laughed at this funny video. Now, I, I think he understands that it was, that's just a, a saying. It's just a joke. But there are a lot of folks that they will admit that they're going to hell and they, they are very religious. They do a lot of, a lot of, uh, religious things, ceremonies, acts, rituals, whatever, but they have no true understanding of Heaven and hell, right and wrong as far as Scripture goes. And though they may say, well, I, I'm probably going to hell, or I, I, it scares me when somebody says, I hope I'm going to heaven. Well, we do have a hope in Christ Jesus. And so we can say through Christ, I have a hope that I'm going. But when someone just casually says, well, I hope I'm going, man, that scares me because it's more than just, I hope I'm going. I hope Tomorrow, I get my car out of the shop. I hope tomorrow I'm going to go hunting. There's some things that I hope for, but I don't know if it's going to happen or not. And if you are hoping that you're going to heaven, I believe I'd rather know that I'm going to heaven. Don't just, it's not just movement. Movement is not life. There's some things that can move that are not alive. Number three, appearance is not always reality. We go back to Ezekiel there. A man's zeal, his external show of religion is no sign whatsoever of his heart. There's too many religious, too many people that are religious that... They practice the markers of a good Christian. 
They give to the church. They give to the poor. They do the right things, but there's still something lacking. Now, many people, and I speak this from from experience, even though I was young when this happened, as someone that um, made a profession and joined the church, but I was lost. I didn't know what it meant to be saved, but I joined the church. Later, I realized that I was lost, and I got saved, and I did things right. After I got saved, I joined the church. But even during that year and a half, two-year period or so, I did the right things. I sang in the choir. I learned to play guitar. Uh, I helped the preacher. I helped the pastor. I helped uh, in the church. I helped the Sunday school teacher. I was a good little boy. I did all these little things. The whole time I was looking at magazines and I'm talking about as a 12-year-old boy, I was looking at these pornographic magazines and videos and things of that sort and my soul was dirty. And I would say things like, man, if I was saved, I wouldn't do this. And then it finally hit me one day, the reason you're doing these things is because you're not saved. It, it moved from just a thought in my mind to a burden in my heart. Even though I was doing the right things in front of everybody, I, I was doing some things that I shouldn't be doing behind closed doors. And so, appearance is not always reality. This writer, Gerard Halleck, he said, There are far too much of religious life that is like the practice of marking time among soldiers. He said, they lift up one foot, then put it down in the same place. They are marching, but they are not moving. In fact, they are going through the motions of a march. So it is with professing Christians. They are but marking time, going through the motions of Christian life. There was, I'll finish this and I'll just give you the other one. There was back, uh, it's over 160 years ago now, there was a great talk about some Siamese twins. Barnum and Bailey had, or Barnum at the time, he had a set of Siamese twins, uh, but they were very real. But someone thought to copy that, and so um, he made a big to-do about it and said, come see our Siamese twins. And so, as people do, they wanted to see this oddity. And so they went in and they saw it blink and they saw it move its head. They saw it nod its head. They saw it move here and there. But upon closer inspection, they realized that it was all fake. It was all just wax and someone was moving it here and there. He said, so it is with Christians in spiritual life. I use the Christians wrong. So it is with professing Christians. He said they wink, they blink, they breathe, they move, but it's all artificial. They're lacking life. Appearance is not always reality. Now, I had a boss man a few years ago, and he said that perception is reality. If you appear... When the boss comes in and you're sitting there, you're laying around, you're not doing anything, he said perception is reality. To your boss man, that means you're lazy, you're not doing your job. 
He said, if you're always busy, every time the boss man, maybe you know the sound of his shoes coming down the hallway. And so you start being busy. You start doing. He said, perception is reality. Perception may be reality, Brother Lee, but it's a false reality. Because that man laying down, he may just have worked himself just plumb to exhaustion and had to wait for 30 seconds to catch his breath. He's been working like a mule, but he had to wait for a few minutes. Or that one that is always lazy heard the sound of the boss man coming down the road or down the hallway and decided he was going to work real hard at that moment until the boss man left and then he was going to go back to his lazy ways. See, perception may be reality, but it's not true reality. I'll give you this last one. And uh, I, I normally I say I'll give you this and I'm going to the house, but I can't go because we have church. Number four, God cannot be deceived. And I only want to give you the scriptures here and uh, then we'll close. In Psalm 139, I want you to read it. We read this on Wednesday night. Psalm 139. Let's look very quickly. It says, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path with my lying down, and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. And then over in Isaiah chapter number 55, verse number 8, it says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. God cannot be deceived. We may think we have Him deceived, but He's not. You may think you have God fooled, but know that He knows your thoughts before you know them. He knows your plans before you know them.